Uh, I'm just going to get right into it in, in, here, here we, uh, today. Um, I'm giving the final sermon on, that I'm going to give on 1 John. Now, this is not the final sermon in the series because we are going to move on into 2 John and 3 John, but I'm only going to do one week on each of those, and then by the, that, that time the summer will be over and we'll be on to the next thing. But I'm calling today's message the gospel according to 1 John. Now, we, we know that the apostle John, he wrote the gospel of John, we know that for sure. And really, when you read this letter to his church, in a lot of ways, it really seems to be echoing a lot of the same things that we get in the Gospel of John. But there's a couple of specific um, things that John gives us that are absolutely crucial and exclusive kind of to this letter compared to the way that he did his Gospel. It's very clear that he had a different intention when he was writing the letter than he did when he wrote his gospel, even though the languages are very similar. So we're going to kind of explore that a little bit today, and we're going to dive into that. So let's open up uh, to the final words of 1 John. It's 1 John 5, verse 13 through 21. Okay. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we know that we have the request that we have we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Then it gets a little complicated. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. But then he says this, but there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everybody who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God, God, born of God, protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. In the whole entire epistle ends by saying, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Jesus, Lord, thank you so much, Father God, um, for just your word, for your amazing, uh, never-changing, eternal word, Father God, that is so rich with um, just everything that we need for our lives. And today, Father God, as we explore yet again just a, a difficult passage, a passage that people have wrestled with for centuries, God, I pray, Lord, that you would just speak through me, Holy Spirit, that you would be evident in this room, Father God, and that everything that you'd have me to say, I would say, and let everything else uh, fall away, fall to the ground, not even come out of my mouth, Lord. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So, what we just read, that, that, that section of scriptures that we just read, they are John's closing remarks in his letter to his church. 
Now, um, they're very intense. It's a very intense close if you really think about it, if you really were listening to what he says. But, you know, one thing I really love about the Apostle John is John is very good at closing remarks. He's very, very good at it. Uh, Toward the end of his gospel, in in John 20, verse 30 and 31, it's kind of the beginning of of his closing remarks, he says this, He's recapping the life of Jesus, and he said, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's it's fascinating if you fast forward one more chapter to the very end of John. I would love to do a whole message on this sometime. I can't today. But John actually says that had everything that Jesus did been recorded, the world wouldn't even be able to contain the books. So Jesus did so many things that they couldn't even write it all down because the world couldn't, couldn't even hold how much he did. So, uh, but, but uh, this is very interesting, kind of toward the beginning of his conclusion here in verse, in, in verse 30 and 31, uh, he tells us this. He says his ultimate goal in writing the gospel of John is that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ. In fact, here in, in, in chapter 20, he says that Jesus, he did many other things. Just like he says in, the, in 21, he says he did many other things, so many things that the world couldn't even contain the books. Jesus did a whole lot in front of him and the disciples, but, but they didn't write it all down. They only wrote down what is needed so that we could find salvation in Jesus Christ. Everything beyond salvation is secondary. So throughout this entire journey of Jesus' life, John says, okay, this matters. This will lead people. This will help people with that process. This will be a step for somebody. This will lead people to salvation. These are the things that John decided were worth putting in the Bible. Everything else is secondary to this, that in Jesus and in Jesus Christ alone, by no other way are we saved. And only in Jesus is life found, and it is found today, here and now, in this place, in your life. So the only difference between this, his gospel, and then the closing remarks that he makes when he gives us this letter that we've been studying, is the gospel of John was written to show people that in Jesus is life. That's the gospel, in Jesus is our salvation, but the letter to the church was written to people who should already know that. The letter was written not to tell them that, the letter was written to remind them of what the gospel means in their lives and how important it is that we have confidence in this gospel that we read about in the gospel of John. So at the end of his letter, in his closing remarks, John begins by saying basically the same thing. If you were to compare those two, John 20 with, uh, with 1 John 5, they're very, very similar in what he's saying. He, he's basically saying, hey, there's a lot of things I packed into this letter. I told you guys a lot of things, things that will help you navigate our broken world and know how to handle these situations that will come at you. You'll know how to handle uh, situations in our world, not only just so you can get through them, but you, so you can actually make a difference in your community, so you can actually have a more fruitful life with your family. You can actually provide a better home, a better life, a better, um, you can be, be part of making all things new in your city, right? John tells us a lot, but he ends by saying that I'm writing you, the reason that I'm writing you is so that you who already believe in Jesus may know 
without a shadow of a doubt, with all confidence, that you may know that you have eternal life. But it's actually rather odd the way that he begins with the concept of assurance. Please understand this. Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. You're, you. In him you have life. He pleads with us the entire time, don't forget this. He knows, yes, you might sin, but you have an advocate, but do not forget this. You have assurance. But then he goes into something called the sin leading to death. He says, well, some sin does not lead to death, and we should pray for people. Uh, we should pray for one another if we know that we're doing the sin not leading to death. Like if you're making a mistake, uh, or we're wa- uh, you're walking down a path that's obviously leading you somewhere not good. We need to be interceding, and quite frankly, we should be intervening in each other's lives when somebody's doing that with the people we're in community with are going the wrong direction. But then John says something kind of scary. He says this, he says, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. So the big question becomes, what is the sin leading to death? What does it mean And is John actually telling people not to pray for one another if they see somebody doing this sin? And if so, why would he tell us that? Because that just seems very counterintuitive to everything we've ever learned about Jesus, about the Gospels, about how we're supposed to constantly never give up on people and always be at, uh, like avenues of grace for people. And just like you're talking about the prodigal son, we should always be, have our arms open wet, right, waiting for that son to come home. So there's a lot of debate about this passage. A lot of different perspectives that all think, of course, that they have the right answers. Um, I'm going to share a couple of those different perspectives with you as we navigate them because I think there's um, probably some things we can learn from all of them. But, but I do want to say this to you before I dive into this, this, this particular difficult passage. Um, I share my thoughts on this passage with you in order that I may help, hopefully, prayerfully, through the Holy Spirit's help, it will help you in your life. It will help us in our community kind of figure out how do we navigate situations like this? How do we guard our hearts from this happening? I, I say it to you not because I believe that my commentary on it is better than anybody else's or more accurate than anybody else's. Um, I know that if there are other ways that you read this, I would love to have a conversation with you about it. That's one of the things that we make central in our church is conversations. Like, hey, what is this saying and what does this mean to us? But I have spent this entire week wrestling with this one passage. Spent all week on it. Um, and, and I've studied it. I've wrestled with it. And I just want to share with you where I landed on it and go from there. So, first of all, there are people who think that this may just be talking about the really bad sins. Like, like oh my gosh, you did what? You committed what? Like, one of the, like, like that. Like, this, you did something so bad, now there's no way that God could possibly redeem you. But earlier in the same exact letter, John tells us that if we confess our sins, then he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So whatever John is talking about when he talks about the sin leading to death, it has to be beyond the scope of that which we can repent of. It has to be beyond the scope of the things that we can confess to one another and can confess to God. We know that much for sure. Because anything that we can confess... And we can genuinely repent of, he is faithful and he's faithful to just to forgive us. Which is why I believe that this view, this idea that tells us that it's just the really bad sins, we can safely rule out. Ultimately, 
for most people anyway, the really bad sins just ends up being the sins that somebody else is committing and you're not. Right? Am I right? Is that not how it normally goes? It's normally like, well, I would never do that, so that's a really bad sin. I can't relate to that sin, so that's just one of the really bad sins. But these things that I'm doing, of course, we say, oh, these are not so bad. Right? But there's no real way to gauge that biblically or in a community sense. And so I feel like there's just all sorts of problems with reading it that way. I don't believe that's what it's saying. So some people believe that this is a reference to an Old Testament law that talks about intentional sins versus unintentional sins and the different punishments for each of these. Now, a lot of scholars and people are quick to rule this one out as well, but as I was studying it, I do see a connection here. I I don't think that this is the end-all connection. It's not an end-all explanation, but it is worth not just discarding. It's worth exploring. But in the Old Testament, the punishment is much more severe for a person who commits an intentional sin than somebody who does one unintentionally. Others talk, of course, about blasphemy. That's what we all think is the unforgivable sin, which, again, that makes sense, but it can't really stand alone here in what John is saying. It all might play into it. But I want us to look at the Greek. This phrase in the Greek that says sin that leads to death is the Greek phrase hamartia pras thonatos. Hamartia pras thonatos. And what it means is sin going toward death. Sin going in the direction of death. It's literally what it means. Hamartia pras thanatos. It is a destructive path. Okay? It is not the destructive result of one particular sin. That's, that much is pretty clear. And what I mean by this is that this is not like I did something wrong and because I did something wrong I got sick. This is not this, oh, I'm suffering in this way or in that way because of something I did earlier on in my life. Now, we, of course, know there are consequences for our actions, and we know that the Bible does have other things in the Bible about that. Those verses do exist. I do not believe that this is one of them. We need to really think about this, which, by the way, don't you guys like my path? I have a nice painted path. This is a pathway to death. But we need, to think, we need to think about this in the context of the letter that we've been given by the Apostle John. Okay? In context of everything that John has been teaching us. And, and, and I, I know this is kind of a lot right now. Hang with me because I, I think this is really going to bless you. This, this really blew my mind as I was studying it. Okay? But you have to think about this in context. Of, what is John saying? He's saying, hey, there's, uh, there's people who are saying that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. There's all these people who have the spirit of the Antichrist. It's among these people. There are these false prophets who are in the church, and they're deceiving people. They're teaching people all the stuff that's wrong, and it's off, and it's, the whole church is at risk because of it, and they've got to get people out just so that they can be healthy, and they almost got to start over. That's kind of what's going on in John's day. So for me to try to think about this concept logically— there's only one possible conclusion, as in, like, this is where we have to, he has to be going, and that is that John has to be describing the path that a person goes down, which ultimately ends with that person denying that Jesus came in the flesh. Which might sound like, oh, whatever, but we'll talk about it in a minute. Right, this was the big issue in John's day. It's the big issue. Um, this is what he's writing about. This is, so this is the result of this sin. But what he's talking about when he's referring to is he's talking about the path. Harmatia, pras, thanatos. So, it is true 
that there was a law about intentional sins and unintentional sins. And the more and more I thought about this word intentional sins and unintentional sins, I started thinking less about the decisions that we make, and I started thinking more about the word intention. For obvious reasons, intentional sins. Because most of us, when you or when I, at least for me, I guess I can't speak for you, but when I think of the word unintentional, I think of the word accident. As you can see, I'm really working on my clip art integration into my sermons. Um, this picture is the picture of a filing cabinet with just a single piece of paper in it. Uh, and kind of what I'm trying to get at is see this. Like most people, we find ourselves in bad situations a lot. We find ourselves in bad situations all of the time. And we make bad decisions all the time. People do that a lot. And quite frankly, those decisions rarely can be categorized, put into the filing cabinet of an accident. That's a very rare time. But a lot of times we screw up and we say, oh, it was an accident. But to call a sin an accident, in most instances, well, what you're always saying is you're saying, I legitimately did not mean to do the thing that I did. An accident indicates that you were going about your day as if everything were fine, and then all of a sudden something happened that you could not prevent from happening, and you could not prevent from doing the thing that you did. It totally uh, takes all responsibility off of yourself. Now that does happen, accidents do happen. But most of the time, the sins that we would commit, whether we, we, whether we did or did not necessarily plan on or intend for them to happen, they wouldn't be categorized as accidents. If we weren't calling them sins, we were calling them something else, we'd probably file them somewhere more like mistakes. The things that we do, and then we feel bad about doing them because we know that they're wrong. In all reality, guys, if we were to categorize our sinful behavior, our mistakes would fill entire rooms full of filing cabinets, wouldn't they? Whether you're convicted by these things or not, the reality is we all have a lot of moments in our lives where we did not make the right decision. But watch this. And this is why I'm led to believe what I do about what John is saying here. John ends this section about sin that leads to death by saying we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. See, if you sin, you feel guilty. You feel guilty if you sin, if you have Jesus Christ living in your life. You feel guilty because God lives inside of you. And because God is living inside of you, you know right from wrong, even in the moments that you choose what's wrong. Okay? Even in the moments where you choose wrong, you still know the difference. That's why typically we, we don't blame shift. If, you, if you're in Christ, you don't pass blame off to somebody else. We take ownership of the things that we've done wrong. That's what repentance is. That's how forgiveness comes. But the more you pattern your life after doing wrong, the less that you will feel that it is wrong. Our hearts and our minds learn things, okay? We, that's what they're created to do. So in the same way that I can teach my, my four-year-old or my six-year-old or my eight-year-old, hopefully eight for sure, that two plus two equals four, and at first, initially, that might seem overwhelming to them to figure it out after repetition and after learning it, after not too long, it becomes very second nature, doesn't it? Two plus two, that's obviously four. If I was to tell you what's three plus four, it's obviously seven. One plus two is obviously three. It'd be very, you're very quick on your toes on these answers because we've done it so much for so long. If I were to ask you, what does John 3.16 say? Most of you very quickly could be able to respond to me. You say, well, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Like, you knew that. I probably could have said it. You probably all could have shouted that back to me, whether you've studied the Bible or not. But if I were to ask you, what does John 20, verse 30 say? 
even though I had it on the screen for like 10 minutes earlier and we talked about it earlier, probably none of you could at least quote it for me. I can't quote it. It's the verse that talks about how Jesus, he did many things that were not written down. It's an important verse, but I don't have it memorized. Most people know John 3.16 because it's right in front of them all the time. Like you could pick up a Bible and you could be reading the Gospel of John and you could read John 3 and you could forget that that verse is even in there. And then when you get to it, you'd be like, I know that verse. And then all of a sudden you feel like a scholar. You're like, dude, I know this stuff. Like, I can, I can quote this. Like, I have this whole thing memorized, right? Because you forget it's even in there, then you read it, and then you, oh, I know that verse because I've heard it so many times in my life. It's always been before us. You go to football games, it's before us. It's on people's eyes. It's everywhere, you know? It's like, it's there. But now flip that and think about sin. The more you're around it, the more natural it becomes. And if you get comfortable just deciding that sin is the way that you want to live your life, before long, your heart and your mind, they're going to get so used to you doing it that they're going to stop convicting you about it. It's like Proverbs 14, 12 says, it says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Okay? We can convince ourselves all day that what we are doing is okay. It's very easy to do that. But when we do that, we're placing ourselves on this incredibly destructive path that cannot lead anywhere good. Now, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews 12, 15 says something very interesting. It says this. It says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And I've never seen this before, the way that I saw this this week uh, when I was reading it and what it led me to. Um, and what it goes on to say just, just blew me away. And I'm going to get to that in a minute. But there's just this one sentence, right? See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. The question is, how do you fail to obtain it? You fail to recognize that you need it. That's how you fail. I know I've been a broken record this series by we're in First John, but every single week I quote Matthew, 3, Matthew 5, 3 that says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you realize I cannot save myself. Blessed are you when you realize that without grace I do not stand a chance. And the reason that I believe that the writer of Hebrews can say something like that, he can say make sure you don't fail to obtain the grace of God is because the grace of God is right in front of you. The grace of God is right there. All you have to do is take it. It's kind of like this video. I'm, I'm going to play a video for you. You've probably all seen this video. You probably remember seeing it several years ago. It's a video from Oprah, okay? But let's watch it together. Everybody in the audience, now listen to me carefully, is being given a special package, and I don't want you to open it. Do not open it. Cameras are on you, so do not open until I tell you. Does everybody have a box? All right, inside one of these boxes is a key. Do not open it yet. Okay, everybody listen up. Here is the deal. If your box has a key, you will be the last person today to get one of those cute little G6s, okay? Who will it be? Are you ready? Hold on. Are you ready? JR is back in our audio booth. I want, you know, JR, this calls for a drum roll. Cue the drum roll. All right, open your boxes. Open your boxes. One, two, three. 
everybody gets a car. Guys, that is my dream to do it like Joy to the D someday. Be like, everybody's in this place. You're like, okay, by the way, everybody gets a house and a car and everything you could possibly imagine that would make your whole lives totally better. Um, but Jesus, everybody gets Jesus. That's what, we, that's what we really, that's what matters. No, listen, it would be like being in that audience that day on Oprah and you had no idea what was going to happen, right? And they surprised everybody. They say, everybody in this entire place gets a car. This is the best news ever. The reason I showed it to you, uh, even though you've probably all seen it, even rather than describing it, so you can see the faces of these people who could not believe the generosity that they did not realize that they were going to be given. They went to see a show and instead they all left with a brand new car. And everybody gets it. It's available to everybody. But then it would be like this. It'd be like the show ends, and then, you know, Oprah does her fancy pants thing, and then she's gone, and then like the next guy comes out who kind of directs or whatever, and he comes out. And it would be like somebody coming out after that and be like, okay, just remind you guys, don't forget to pick up your new car. You have the keys already. It's parked outside. Just make sure you don't leave it in our parking lot because we tow cars that are left overnight. Get them out of here. Take your car home. Every one of you gets it. It is absolutely yours. It would be insane to leave that place without a car. That is what the writer is saying. Do not live your life as if you don't need it. Don't live your life like you don't need grace. You were just given the greatest gift that you could ever imagine. Accept it. Take it as your own. own. Like, jump up for joy. Hug your mom. This is one of the most amazing moments of your entire life. Everything just changed. It's amazing. Okay, now follow this, okay? This is what Hebrews says. He says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And then it says this. This is huge. It says, that no root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble, and by it many become defiled. Which this is extremely significant, and I'm going to explain this in just a moment. But then, and I never noticed this before, I never put these two together before, but then it goes on to connect to the thought of Esau, the story of Esau. And the story of how Esau stole his birthright for a bowl of red stew. It's a very odd story for those of you who don't know it. Uh, there's this guy, Jacob, and he, he, he's the younger brother to this guy, Esau. And Jacob, he's a really good cook, you know, because that's what we Jacobs do. We cook really, really good food. Yeah, you got to try my salmon. You guys, I, I, it's really ridiculous. This, this, but he made stew. You know, I, I don't do a lot of stew. I, but he, he made stew. And, and, and Esau comes home. He's like working the field. He comes home, and he's exhausted and he smells this stew, and he's like, Jacob, give me some of that stew. And Jacob, he's like being mischievous and conniving, and he's kind of a mean dude. He's like, he's like I know I'm a really good cook, and, um, but you are the firstborn, and you have the birthright. So I was like, let's trade. I'll give you a bowl of stew if you give me your birthright. And of course, Esau, he's kind of not there right now. His mind is a little bit off. He's very, very hungry. So he agrees to it. Okay? He agrees to doing that. Then later... He realized what had taken place. He realized what his brother had done to him. And from there, Esau began to develop one of these roots of bitterness. And it began defiling him so badly that it says he, he later went to seek the blessing of his father, but Jacob had already snuck in and stole that too. He had tricked his father into telling him that, um, that he was Esau. His father didn't see very well at that point, and he blessed Jacob when he was supposed to bless Esau. So Esau, who is the firstborn son, 
He was supposed to get everything, but in the end, he got nothing. He was just so disappointed. It was disappointment after disappointment, getting let down after let down, frustration with his brother who took everything that rightfully belonged to Esau. But then this is what Hebrews says about Esau. He says Esau was so hurt and he was so angry that his heart became so hard that it became impossible for him to repent. Impossible. It's like, like the, the son said, and then Austin, you covered it, when you talk about how the, the son, when he came to his senses, he came back and the father welcomed him. What this is saying is Esau got to a point in his life where he could not come to his senses. He got so used to being so angry and so full of hate that nothing else was even possible for him. And this is, this is what happens with any sin that we, get a, when, that we grow accustomed to committing. It's not just anger. Sin is a deadly trap. We read about this, and we, we read about the, um, the root of bitterness, and of course we naturally think of anger. But in fact, if you actually open your Bible to that part, that verse in Hebrews right there, what it actually says, it's actually very interesting because what, what it does is it, 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 in the middle of it, it talks, about the, it talks about the root of bitterness, it talks about Esau, and in the middle of it, it actually just says this thing about sexual immorality. And about, un, and about unholiness. He says, you don't want to be sexually immoral or unholy. So he says, brood of bitterness, sexual immorality, unholy like Esau. And then it goes back to Esau, who obviously got angry. So it's actually fascinating. Because we, we're used to it when it talks about sexual, or about anger, right? But it's not just anger. It's just sin. It's sin in general. It is the stuff that we give ourselves over to. But watch this, okay? The book of Hebrews was written, we don't know exactly who wrote it, but we know that it, it was written to the Hebrew people for the purpose of showing the Hebrew people that everything in the Torah, everything in the prophets, all lead us to Jesus. They're pointing to Jesus. See, the uh, Jewish people, the Hebrew people, they, did, they didn't think that Jesus was the Messiah. They were still waiting for the Messiah. So they wrote this book, and they wrote it in language that, these, that the Hebrews would be familiar with, language from the Torah, to show them, hey, this is about Jesus. So when it talks about a root of bitterness, it shows you how this separates you and cuts you off from Jesus. Okay? And the concept of a root of bitterness is talked about in the Torah. It explains clearly what it is. And man, this put a, really, this put a seal for me on this, on this um, sin leads to death thing. If, if you turn to Deuteronomy 29, it starts in verse 18. And uh, I'm going to read 18 and 19 uh, and eventually 20. And this is what it says. It says, Beware, lest there be among you a man or a woman or a clan or a tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. But now watch this. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant— he blesses himself in his heart, saying, watch this, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of the moist and the dry alike. This is what this is saying. It is possible for a person to become so numb, so used to sin, Anger, sexual immorality, greed, violence, gossip, indifference, injustice, whatever it might be. That even though they know that there was a cost to that sin, 
it was a cost to put them into covenant with God. They know what it costs, yet they treat it like it does not cost anything, like there is no cost. And they treat it that way by making intentional, deliberate, thought-out decisions that are just wrong. It's not that they're making, it's not just that they're making decisions that are wrong, but they have, through a process of willful repetition, actually convinced themselves in their heart that these things are right. These things are not wrong. I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. And I think that I'm okay. I think that doing that is fine. In their stubborn hearts, they have convinced themselves that it does not cost anything. And look at what verse 20 says about those people. The Lord will not be willing to forgive them. The Lord will not be willing to forgive them. Back to 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we ask that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death, but there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. When John says to pray for people who sin, but then he says there is sin that leads to death, and I do not say that we should pray for that. He's not telling us to stop praying for people who have strayed in such a way that you or that I have deemed too far gone, guys. That is just simply not our call to make. We don't give up on people. But what John is saying is that he knows that there are people like Esau. People who have hardened their hearts so much that just like Esau, it is now truly impossible for them to repent. And it's not because God is not wait, doesn't want them to repent. It's because their entire lives, even though they're repent, they want to repent, it's they're still thinking about themselves. They can't get past what was done to them. It's, Hebrew says that Esau sought repentance with tears. Like he wanted to repent, but he did not want it bad enough because his heart could not let go of what had been done to him. And it destroyed him. And John, John says here, he says, he says, well, I tell you to pray for sinners because the world is so broken. And our job is to be a part of reconciling that world. And there are certain things that only God can reconcile. And so we pray and we put that in God's hand. God, do this for us. But he's not telling us not to pray for somebody. He's just telling us that when I'm telling you to pray, I'm telling you that anything we pray in accordance to the will of God will be answered. But as you can see here, if someone is just too far gone, I'm not telling you that that's going to get answered. I can't tell you that. Because God's not willing to forgive someone who's unable to repent. So we can still ask. John's just letting us know, you know, there's only one time that God can't respond. And it's this. When people have hardened their hearts so much and they've lost themselves in themselves so much that they, they can't even hear the voice of God anymore. They just can't hear it. They, they couldn't hear the voice of God if they were sitting in their bedroom and a loudspeaker came out from heaven, broke through the wall, and started talking to them. They still couldn't hear it. Church, if there's one thing in the entire world that I want to make sure that you understand, it's that the gospel is for people who know that they need it. The gospel is for people who can come to terms with the fact that 
In my own life, I am not who I should be. In my own life, I will not make it on my own. In my own life, I cannot do it without Jesus. That is the gospel. Yet some of us live our entire lives doing everything that we can to convince ourselves that we do not need the gospel. This is what makes sin so dangerous. The first time you might fall into it, it might even be an accident. But before long, you're walking into it. And then before long, you're diving into it, like you would dive into a pool on a hot day. This is the most natural thing. It is so hot, all I need to do is go in because that's what makes me feel good. And the more that you feed it, the less that you will feel it. You just start doing it. You just start having it. One of the most dangerous paths that a person can walk down is this road toward justifying themselves. We've seen this a lot in our world today. We've talked about it a lot in this series, that there are people who... At least, like, you know, people, there are things that people used to think were bad. Or at least, at least for us to be able to say, hey, this isn't right. Like, that would at least be like a moral position. It would be a standard. But now people actually tell us that we're evil if we hold people to a standard. Or we're evil if we even believe that at all. Morality, in many instances, is considered immoral today in our world. It is considered unjust in our world today. The cultural majority is that sin must be accepted, and it must and, and for me to even call it sin is bigotry, intelligence, in, in, intolerance, and even injustice, and which is the worst thing in the world to me because we're trying so hard to fight injustice. But yet this is what we're accused of. Because Jesus, he was not kidding when he says that I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. He wasn't joking. That's why he says you, you need to be wise as serpents, but you need to keep your innocence. Innocent as doves. Because we're going to need Jesus if we're going to navigate a culture like that. Culture so void of him, yet so desperate for him. People want to feel like they're okay. People need to feel like they're okay. But they're not content having to rely on it be Jesus who makes them okay. They want to feel like they're okay just all on their own, and this is the reason that they do that. It's toward, right toward the end of 1 John, 1 John five nineteen. John tells us this. It's one of the last things he says. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. In church, if you spend enough time in the world learning what they're teaching, but you're barely spending any time at church, and you're barely spending any time reading your Bible, and you're barely spending any time praying or fasting or seeking God's face, and you're barely spending any time with other Christians in healthy communities, or any time seeking God's will for your life, or seeking God's protection over you as you navigate this incredibly broken, sinful world, then you run the risk of doing this. You run the risk of coming here, Hearing the gospel, but then going out there and seeing people who seem to be doing just fine without the gospel. And if you don't have a grasp on why the Bible is important, on why this book matters, if you don't have a grasp on why what Jesus did for you matters, you very easily could start to think that you do not need it. And we see it as just this obvious thing. Of course, we would never just do that, but it's subtle. It's subtle. It's you and it's me slowly drifting from the things that we know are true. And because it happens so slowly, we don't even notice it. And before long, we're looking to Jesus and we're looking at our lives and we're looking at the world and we're thinking, maybe I don't need that guy. My life's turning out okay. I really enjoy doing these little things that the Bible seems to be telling me not to do. Why would God want me to suffer by depriving myself of such pleasure? Maybe the gospel isn't what it says it is. And that's the message that is in our world because the world lies in the power of the evil one. 
But if you buy into the lie, before long, you're going to be saying that Jesus did not come in the flesh. Now, I know you're not going to be saying that with your words, especially after 16 weeks of me telling you how bad it is to say that. But you're going to be saying it with the way that you live your life, with your actions. If you live your life in a way that says sin does not matter, then what you're saying is that Jesus did not need to be torn apart for you. There's another place in Hebrews, in Hebrews 10, 26. And what it says is if people go on sinning deliberately, if we make a conscious decision to just, this is just the way we want to live, it says that when we do that, the sacrifice for our sins no longer remains. Because what we're doing, it says, is we're profaning the covenant. We're profaning the work of the cross. We're saying this doesn't matter. We're saying it wasn't necessary for you to do that. It has no effect on my life that you did that. It has no effect on my being that you did that. But this is what John reminds us at this very end. He says, yes, guys, the world, it lies in the power of the evil one. But we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding that we may know him who is the truth. This is why John wrote the letter, that we may know. That we may know that Jesus is stronger. That we may know that Jesus is living in us and that he really did come in the flesh to die for us. And that he really is worthy of worship. And that he really is worthy of you and of me giving our entire lives to him. That is, this is, the gospel is worth the pain that comes with repenting. I know it's hard to repent sometimes. The gospel is worth it. Repent. It's worth the work that it takes to forgive another person. It is worth the sacrifice of all these earthly goods that you might be missing out on or giving up on to remain in the will of God, to be able to continue to do his mission in his kingdom the way that you're supposed to do it. It's worth it because we know the truth and we have the truth and God is on our side. And John ends this letter. The very last thing he says in the whole entire letter, and it seals this entire book. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from the things that make you feel like you don't need God. Keep yourselves from antichrists, antichristos, things that seek the place of God. Keep yourself from filling voids that you might be feeling with things that ultimately will let you down. Because those things, here's the problem, they'll satisfy you for a moment. They'll satisfy you for a season, but ultimately it will leave you empty, just like we talked about last week. They'll make you feel good for a moment. That's why it's so dangerous. You'll do it, you'll feel full for a little while, and then the moment that you, that you get to a place where you don't have it anymore, you're going to keep thinking, man, I want, how do I get back to that? How do I get back to that? How do I get back to that? Right? The less you're going to think about the things that truly fill you, the more you keep filling yourself with other things. You think, how do I get that again? I want to feel that way again. I want to feel that way again. How do I get back to that again? Guys, save yourself from all that junk. Save yourself from that stress and from the burden of it all by keeping yourself away from it entirely. Because Jesus is enough. So understanding the difference in how John wrote his gospel and how John wrote his first letter, it is absolutely pivotal, it is absolutely crucial for you and I to understand what this letter actually means. John wrote his gospel so that people who did not know Jesus could be introduced to Jesus. But the letter was written to us who that introduction had already been made. We already know Jesus to show us and to remind us that the gospel changes everything in our entire lives and in our communities and in our family. 
John wrote this letter to show us that the gospel is the only thing that will stand the test of time. It's the only thing that has stood the test of time, and it's the only thing that will. There are a million counterfeits out there, but there's only one God, and his name is Jesus. And he died for you, and he's enough.